0: listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. My name is Adam Sokol, and if you've been listening since the beginning, welcome back. If this is your first time listening in, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today's episode is with a fabulous author named Emily Austin, who wrote a book called Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead. And it is a book that I adore. I have adored it since the moment it came out. Uh, when it first came out, I interviewed her about it. And I it might just be the book that I have recommended the most over the past couple of years. Uh, she has a new book that was recently announced that we talk about in the show. It was just kind of going through edits. So don't want to talk about it here because it'll, it'll change a little bit uh, before the actual book comes out, but we we, we we do talk about it in the episode, and, and she describes what it's about. So her first book is in a really interesting look at mental health and the concept of religious trauma and a whole bunch of different things. And That is actually what we touch on today in this episode. It's a little bit different. Every other episode is something people are passionate about. Uh, I wouldn't exactly call religious trauma something Emily is passionate about, but it's something she has a great deal of experience with. And she grew up in a a uniquely blended household where there was uh, different, uh, differing religious beliefs, And it didn't always create the most positive experience for her. Uh, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a household that also had differing religious beliefs, uh, but it was a a very positive experience for me. So we, we talk about both our experiences, and it's a really deep and interesting conversation, and, and I think you'll like that it's, uh, again, if you've listened in for a while, uh, the tone of this episode is going to be slightly different, but I really do think you'll enjoy it. Uh, as you may know, if you've been listening in, I've been letting people know, if you email any rating or review that you leave with a podcast, whether it's on... Apple or Spotify or iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to the podcast, if you email me your review at passionsandprologues at gmail.com, I will give you some customized book recommendations. And I also want to share two book recommendations for you right now. One, a book that I just finished and another book that has a little bit to do with mental health and things that we talk about in this episode. So the book that I just finished reading is a relatively new novel came out this year called All Dressed Up by Jillie Gagnon, I want to say. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, but All Dressed Up is a murder mystery wrapped in a murder mystery at a murder mystery. It's so great. The main protagonist and her boyfriend, or rather, I believe, husband, Go to a murder mystery dinner, but rather instead of just a dinner, it's actually an entire weekend. It's like a weekend getaway where they have to bring 1920s style clothes and they have to take on a character and they have to, uh, you know, kind of live that world for for the weekend and while they do so they're attending a murder mystery so they have to figure out you know what went wrong and uh who's to blame and um the the main character is actually surprised she didn't know that's what was happening so she gets a bit of a startle at the beginning of the this isn't a spoiler it happens almost instantly uh but someone does end up actually getting murdered eh, for real while they're at this murder mystery and so they have to figure out what went wrong and it's just really interesting uh as long-time listeners of, of the podcasts I've been on know I'm a huge fan of Agatha Christie novels, and this is very much like an Agatha Christie novel wrapped up in an Agatha Christie novel. So that's All Dressed Up by Jilly Gagnon. And then the other book I want to talk about, um, you know, it is the season, so I want, to, I want to focus on it, and it has to do with mental health, is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson is one of, if not the greatest... Horror novelist, really of all time. Uh, we have always lived in the castle. Came out in the 1960s, and it's a mystery novel centered around the main character, Maricat Blackwood, who lives with her agoraphobic sister and her ailing uncle on this like private estate in Vermont. Six years before the events of the novel, the family went through this horrible tragedy, and it left the three survivors really isolated from the small village and. You don't really know what happened until the very end. And uh, it is just unsettling and creepy and delightful. And one, again, one of the best stories ever written. There's also a really, really good adaptation that came out, I believe, on Netflix uh, that is delightful. Highly recommend that. But yeah, We Have Always In the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Phenomenal. Okay. That is all the housekeeping, that is all my recommendations. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Emily Austin, all about religious trauma and how it affects her writing on Passions and Prologues. All right, so I am super excited to be joined by Emily Austin, who it's been a couple years since We did an interview for the last podcast that I was on, but I remember, and I still think about and tweet about all the time, everyone in this room will someday be dead. It's just one of my favorite books ever, and I tell everyone in the world about it. And so for anyone who has listened to episodes of this podcast, you'll know that calling it Passions and Prologues, because we're talking about things that people are crazy passionate about, but this is going to be slightly different to say that you'd be passionate about the thing we're going to be talking about might be a little strange, but it's definitely something that inspires your work. So Emily, what are we going to be discussing today?
1: We're going to be talking about religious trauma today. So <laughs> yeah, not exactly. Uh, I think when you first asked, you were like, oh, what's something that, um, what was it, like something that you love? <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, is I love this one. <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah, it's something where most people who come on are talking about like, you know, whether it's weightlifting or the Muppets or whatever. But when you said that, I mean, having read your first book, like it, it makes a lot of sense to me. But um, what we can do is we can sort of start at the beginning. Like, what was your religious background when you were a child and kind of how did the, I guess we'll get to the, the traumatic aspects of it, but what sure. was your kind of religious upbringing?
1: Yeah, so my fa- I was in a Catholic family, but I have sort of an interesting situation because my mom uh, was raised in a more, like, fundamentalist uh, Protestant family, and my dad's side of the family was Catholic. So on a really, like, uh, zoomed-in level, I had an understanding of the uh, rift between <laughs> Protestants and Catholics, mm-hmm. just within my own family. But yeah, I was, I was uh, like, baptized Catholic, and I went to Catholic school my whole life but I did have my mom's side of the family um, did like, I did have a a pretty good window into like fundamentalist Christianity as mm-hmm. well. So I got to sort of see that the, the uh, those two types of religions mm-hmm. and how they have an impact on, uh, I was particularly interested in the impact on queer people and on women.
0: Um, yeah. I, I feel like I had a, similar but co- like opposite end of the spectrum situation where i was raised roman catholic my mom is catholic my father's side of our family is jewish but he's not practicing so like we went to church and we went to catholic school but it was the opposite where like the other half of the family wasn't strictly anything in fact like we would go to hanukkah and it would be more so like a, a stand up comedy hour where like my aunts and uncles <laughs> like, making <laughs> yeah so uh, you know what was that kind of experience like for you as a, a kid like were you, did you notice like rifts or differences between the family when you were younger or was it more so just kind of you're going with the flow
1: there were rifts between the fa- so um before my parents got married like my mom's parents were both really like loving nice people and not to say that anyone else in the family isn't, but when they were first getting married, um, someone on that side of the family wrote a letter to my dad, sorry, saying that they didn't want um, them to get married because he was Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I knew that when I was a kid. Um, and so that was always sort of... And I knew, like, my my Omanopa on my mom's side would come to, like, our first communions and things, even though they weren't Catholic. Mm-hmm. And even though I knew there was, like... Uh, they that they not only weren't Catholic, but didn't agree with, mm-hmm. with Catholic. So I knew when they came to that, it was like a gesture. Mm-hmm. So that was always sort of, and I knew like when I was little, I knew when we were talking about certain topics with certain family members that there was like tension there. Mm-hmm. I think I was, I was sort of indoctrinated in thinking cause I was raised Catholic and I was in Catholic school um, and when I was a kid, you know, I was, I believed I was Catholic
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I thought of Catholics people as being right. Right. Yeah. So I also already had this dynamic when I was interacting with that side of the family, that even though I thought really highly of them and, you know, loved them, I did think they were wrong,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, religiously Yeah, <laughs> when I was a kid. So like, and I remember, and you know, to be fair, like, you know, like obviously the Catholic side was wrong about some things too, but that side of the family, like didn't believe in evolution. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was like, there was like a level of, uh, you know, <laughs> of me being like a kid interacting with them and kind of thinking like, they don't know, they don't know things, which is not a great dynamic for a kid mm-hmm. with, you know, but.
0: Yeah. I So I know in like a slightly similar situation. I know my parents when they got married, I know at least one set of grandparents both didn't approve and didn't attend their wedding. I don't remember if it was both. It's obviously before my time. Um but I I remember like learning about that later on in life and being like secondarily angry about it. And I was like, how dare you not like looking at how wonderful a relationship my parents have. But I like I said our it was less I feel like, I don't know, traumatic is the wrong word for me. It was more like just less chaotic or stressful just because for us, it was like my dad had no interest in religion. Like he famously, in our family anyway, got kicked out of several Hebrew schools just like (laughs) by purposely acting out. So he didn't have a tent. Uh, So he never had any interest in it, but he was, we would go to things to kind of support the family. Um, I'm interested from your family's like the dichotomy and the, the situation, like how did the side of the family that was like had like didn't believe in evolution and things like that, how did they approach your family when you would like those topics would come
1: up? So like for a lot of, like the people who I interacted most with on that side of the family were really like they weren't um super toxic right mm-hmm. and they were like my mom's parents are Dutch immigrants They came to Canada right after World War II and like they were in they were kids in Holland during World War II mm-hmm. and they're part of um like a Dutch reformed religion which mm-hmm. is you know so it I I knew from them that like that was culturally important to them and and so anyway so I, I always thought highly of them I just thought they didn't have the same knowledge, which is honestly layered because when I was a kid, I thought, "Oh, they don't know as much as as Catholics know. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, well, no, <laughs> like I think I was, you know, there was layers of me being sort of um, wrong about how I saw other people in terms of religion. And that's one thing that I am interested into and is like there's sort of like an us versus them mentality mm-hmm. that's very layered in some in some religious uh, communities, but particularly in like fundamentalist or patriarchal Mm -hmm. religions. So like, yeah, like evangelical religions or uh, Catholicism to an extent, but Catholicism to like, to my mom's side of the family, Catholicism was really liberal. Right. And so, and that also affected my perception because I was thinking like, I'm, I'm in a liberal religion, (laughs) but I wasn't.
0: Mm Yeah. I, So that's really interesting. When, at what point in your life did you realize that maybe this was a little bit out of the ordinary? Because, like I said, for for me, it was like we had positively joked about it. Like we called ourselves cashews, like Catholic Jews. Like it was like our family kind of embraced the like towing that line of like, yeah, we're Catholic, but we go to Passover. And like, I know what Yom Kippur is and all these different things. Like I had a, a good experience of seeing two different religions. And I think in a weird way, the fact that even though we went to Catholic school and my mom raised us Catholic and like, we never took it too seriously. So I think that ended up being a good thing, which is such a weird thing to say about religion. And like, spirituality and being like, we didn't take spirituality too, too seriously. So I'm okay about it now. But like, was there a point when you were younger that you started to realize like this riff is a real thing?
1: Yeah. So I think like, well, one thing I want to say is I don't think religion is like, I think religion can be really important to people spiritually. Mm -hmm. I think it can be like important for your identity and it's, and it's good. But when it's, when it starts to be traumatic is when it's like, when it starts telling you something is wrong with you Mm -hmm. or there's something you need to fix about yourself. Like, and that's when it starts to become like religious abuse, right? And um, so when I was a kid, I think it wasn't until, like when I was in like grade seven, I still, I was from like a small town. And I went to Catholic school and I didn't like, I thought until I was probably like 12 or 13 that people didn't have sex until they were married. Right. I thought like, this is the way the world is. This is how it works. And then when I was in high school and, and I also thought things like, I was like, Oh yeah, being gay is a sin. Like that's mm-hmm. a sin. I thought abortion was bad. Like mm-hmm. I remember, and I thought that in high school too, because I went to high I went to Catholic high school and we had like speakers come to assemblies who told who told us abortion was murder, and who told us like we had one who really who was like like sort of a traumatic uh, speaker who said she was a product of rape and that if she if her mom had gotten an abortion, you know, and it was like you're like 14 years old and you're like oh my god like that's horrible, and and we were assigned like essays in school um, about why abortion is murder. Like it was it wasn't like write an essay about the topic of abortion. It was like. The assignment is yeah abortion is murder, which is really, you know, psychologically it, like, because it makes you um think really hard about why it is and try to prove it. Like if you're a student who's really trying to write a good essay, which mm-hmm. I was, um, you know, I would have really tried to be like, well, I really want to prove this this point, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's like um once I was in high school and I started to realize um some of the things that I've been taught weren't true about the world. Like, okay, like I realized like some of my friends are having sex. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't think they're going to hell. Like, you know, like Susie and Jimmy love each other. I don't care that they're having, and even if they didn't, you know, like it didn't. Mm -hmm. And like my best friend growing up is gay. Um, And well, and you know, and I realized he was gay before myself. And and I was like, well, obviously he's a good person. (laughs) And I don't think like, I, if, if he's going to hell, then what the hell is heaven? Like, it, it sounds like God's a bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why would I, you know, you start to, um, and I think that's part of why, like when I was a kid, I was made to think like, okay, like Catholics believe in evolution, for example, or not all of them, but generally Catholics believe in evolution. Um, and so I kind of was, I was, and I thought of them as more liberal because of my upbringing. Right. I thought mm-hmm. like okay, Catholics are more liberal. And I thought, like intellectually, I thought Catholics aren't just mindlessly believing, like they don't read the Bible literally, they read it metaphorically, they believe in evolution. Um, So I thought, like, okay, this is the one where they've really thought it through, like philosophically it makes sense, but it made me think more philosophically about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started to be like, well, wait, like, this doesn't make sense. Like, and I started to get really interested in like... Um, how the Bible was written, and actually, when I went to university, I got my major in English, but I s- took religious studies at al- as almost every elective, and it was my like minor when I graduated mm-hmm. because I was interested in it. And so I was like learning about like how how is the how was the Bible written, for example? What was the time period? How what are translate? And I was particularly interested uh, in the translation for the words "gay" in the Bible, right? Like I wanted to know, okay, what did that mean originally? And I had like professors who, you know, were very, um, you know, like I, I took religious studies classes, so I had some professors who were doctors and rabbis and some professors who, you know, they were from different religions and, and some of them could speak, like or well, couldn't speak because you know, I don't know what's ancient, but they understood the translations very well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was able to learn, like, oh, okay, like I don't believe anymore that the original text said anything about being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway,s and that sort of took me down a, a train of being like something. This isn't right. <laughs> they, I don't think they have it right, um, or at least I don't think they have it right when they say something is wrong with someone. Mm-hmm. Or that um, things like being gay or having an abortion or being a woman or being a woman who wants to speak or teach or like those are the things that I think it's not it's no longer about the religion. And it's more about like um, exerting power over people and about people trying to use religion as a tool to, you know, for for white men to oppress mm-hmm. other people. That's uh Yeah. yeah. I,
0: I have so many <laughs> agreeing thoughts that I want to like share. I, you're absolutely right. Like I, I, I'm similar in the sense that I've always been interested by kind of the history of religion. Like there's a book that I've read like five times since I was. It's it's not new at all. It's very old. Um, I think it's called The Case for Christ, and it's like it's written by a person who I believe they're agnostic, but basically they wanted to go back in history and see if they could historically prove that like Jesus existed, the human, not this deity. And so it was really interesting. And it talks about a lot of the things that you were discussing and like the, the thing that you hit that you said that I think is where I fall on my issues with religion is the fact that it is just about, it's like, how much power can I, a straight white male exert over the rest of like the world. And when you look at all the different things that they, pick and choose like you said like oh well abortion is should is bad and it's like well actually that's nowhere in the bible there's this really awesome instagram account and i'll link it in the show notes um they got the name of the account is Jigazis. he's this gay person who looks he has very long curly hair and a beard and like he dresses like a gay jesus and he but he has a like educational background in biblical studies like this person knows everything there is to know on what the, like you said, the translations actually mean, and the fact that it's like, okay, well, if you really think somewhere in the Bible says, like, a man with another man, and that and you want to take that literally, well, then I hope you're not wearing clothes that have, you know, two different types of, you know. (laughs) yeah. Yeah, or like, my issue has always been, like, if there is an omnipresent thing out there, first off, it's not gendered, so stop saying he, like, I hate when people do that and also the fact that like why would that omnipresent thing care about if i'm eating an animal that has a cloven hoof or like
1: exactly yeah does
0: that unspoken deity really care about the fact that i only eat fish on fries like well no it's because the church owned fish markets like there's you can (laughs) yeah there's there's
1: reasons yeah exactly interesting like a level to that too which is the problem with uh Teaching kids, well, not the problem. this is if you teach kids to be philosophical about religion and you make them like overthink things, like Christianity is built on on the idea that God sacrificed his body for us. But it's also built on the idea that your spirit matters more than your body.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if it's true that God is this sexist, homophobic guy, and those of us who are saying, oh thanks then, then we're sacrificing our spirits, which is, you know, not to be super sacrilegious, arguably more of a sacrifice yeah. than the one made that is the foundation of the religion. So, yeah, I think, like, ultimately, there's no way, that wouldn't make any sense for someone, for, for God to care if, um, if people are gay. Or, and also, like, the Bible has passages about abortion. <laughs> like, there is abortion in the Bible, um, so, but anyways, I, if, if that's really what they, the, the God cares about, mm-hmm. then they don't sound great. like, why would I want to go there?
0: Yeah. There's not to like make light of things, but I think one of the people who has like eloquently spoke on this succinctly there's a comedian bo burnham who's just like and he has a song called god's perspective and it's just like it's literally like the the lyrics are like why do you think i would care about any of these things like it's just i don't know it makes yeah (laughs) um so at what point did you realize like i think i want to start writing this right writing through these things or like how did you begin to process it um, ironically, I have a therapy appointment right after this, which I'll probably awesome. be talking about these types if th- it was like perfect timing <laughs> to do this, but like, you know, how did you start to process all the things that were from your life that you disagreed with and how did you approach that?
1: Yeah. So I think like in, in everyone in this room will someday be dead. I don't think that I, um, like, I don't think that that reads too heavily critical of the Catholic church to be, I think they are. Like, There's a couple little nods to it, but not mm-hmm. like I wouldn't say that that's fully what that's about. And um, I did actually, I wrote um, it's given a grant by the Canada Council of the Arts to write poetry that reworks Bible um, Bible passages and Catholic prayers to turn them into like um, like pride, sort mm-hmm. of. So, like, it's just like tweaking the language. So, like, the passage about um. Like, not lying with a man as you would with a woman is, like, changed to say, like, lying with a man as you would with with a woman, you'll inherit heaven. Um, Like, love is proud, that kind of thing. Like, just changing the language. So, I think, like, I'm definitely liable to write something that is more, um, like, directly in response to this. But I don't know that everyone in this room will someday... I think everyone in this room will someday be dead does focus a little bit on how... It doesn't make sense for people to want to make other people's lives miserable, mm-hmm. or to you know make anyone live a certain way, so that um, for some for like a religious reason, when okay. it would make their lives miserable. Like one one thing that um, Gilda says is like um, like Gilda's already very so the character in the book is very depressed mm-hmm. and she's already, and it's not you know it's it has nothing to do with um, coming out or anything, you know, nothing directly related to being gay. If anything, her being gay is the only thing, and her relationship with a girl is the only thing that she's not depressed about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and she says something in the book along the lines of, like, this religion would take away the only thing that I that makes my life worth living. And that's the one sort of sentiment that I did want to represent in that book, which is that, and I did that with, with her brother too, is that um, if... Like, why would you want to take away, like, something that gives people fulfillment and makes Mm -hmm. them happy and makes them feel like their life is worth living? Which, for a lot of people, um, is their relationships with other people. And, you know, like, if you were to tell someone, okay, so now, like, and that's one thing that the Catholic Church does, too, which is manipulative, which is that... They'll say, "Oh, we, you can be gay. Like we don't. We're. It's not the same as some evangelical religions who who would say being gay doesn't exist, and it's mm-hmm. just like a weird choice you have made." Yeah. The Catholic Church would say, "You, you can be gay, but you have to be celibate. You can never get married. You can never have a relationship." And it's like, "Well, that's." So you're taking away something that it, most people would say. Well, not most, but well, probably most. Uh, most people would say when they're dying, like, that was the most fulfilling part of their life. That was the most important part of their life, was their relationships with other people, like their spouse, or, you know, that mattered to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is one thing I was trying to get across in that book, is that um, when you use religion on people who potentially already, like, if you're already depressed, like, that's why, I think that's a big part of why there are higher suicide rates among queer people um, it is partly because of like homophobia and transphobia and, and that, but I think it's which this is, but it's also that you're taking away something potentially, um, uh, that makes people feel like their lives are worth living. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, it's a situation where, you know, when you're younger and you're raised in a church of any kind, whether it's, you know, like to one extreme where you're going every day. And it's, it, you know, like, it's that fundamental, like, this is the entire, like, this is what we circle our cell our lives around. Or like I said, where for me, I, you know, we went to church every Sunday, but it wasn't like, it was a, we said grace before dinner, but it was like, God, thank you for this delicious food. Amen. Like literally yeah. that was our grace. Yeah. <laughs> I, like regardless of how you, connected to religion, you you are raised being like, okay, you, you should be able to trust and feel safe with your family and you should be able to trust and feel safe in, in that religion, whether it's, you know, at a church or at a gathering, whatever it is. So like you said, it, it, it's really, it's easy to see how people can be emotionally affected heavily by religion when they're told as they're discovering who things about themselves for the first time, they're then told you're no longer welcome in this place that you've been told for all your life you should feel safe in, if that makes sense.
1: Exactly. And that's why, and that's why I'm interested in religious trauma specifically, because all forms of abuse are obviously horrible, but spiritual abuse is like a unique, like you're going to the core of someone and you're saying you're flawed and something's wrong with you. Like it's such a, I don't want to say that's a worse kind of abuse than other kinds of abuse, but it's like it's really terrible. Like, it's a really horrible thing to do to someone to say, you know, at your core, you're bad. Like, and that's one of the, like, like the concept of original sin, for example, like that's toxic. That's not, that's not um, a nice way for people to exist, like to just feel, and that's like, that's why there's like the concept of like Catholic guilt, for example, like for people to be, to exist in their whole existence and always feel like sort of ashamed of themselves. It's like, why, why are we, and the, and the reason why I think it's to, is because you're more, um, you know, you're easier to manipulate and to use for other people's gain. If you're constantly made to feel like something's wrong with you, you should feel bad about yourself. Um, there's, you know, like there's no, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's no good reason for that, um, and that's when religion goes, goes wrong. I think, like, there are, like we said, like, there's lots of good, you know, like, religion can be good. Religion, for some people, it's really fulfilling and good, but it's when it starts to tell you something's wrong with you, um, or, you know, like, you're something that needs to be fixed, then mm-hmm. that's when it starts to, like, spiritually abuse you.
0: We'll be back with more Passions and Prologues after this break. Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. And now, back to Passions and Prologues. So, what's your relationship now with like spirituality and religion? Because for me, even though I don't go to church, if ever anymore, really I can't remember the last time I went to a mass, but I do find like comfort and solitude in a large in a large cathedral, one of those places, just because it's like it's familiar and it's nostalgic and these different things, and like, and I think because even now in my mid thirties, I'm still like terrified of death, and I want to feel like you know, my I matter, <laughs> it, it, yeah. you know, I'm not just some random chance. In my mind, like even though I don't believe in ninety nine percent of the stuff that like the church says, in my mind, I'm like well but there should be something out there, right? Cause I have to matter it, which isn't, which is an absurd statement just because I'm still like grasping my own mortality. Like what is your relationship with spirituality now?
1: Yeah. So I'm similar to you where I have like, you know, like, yeah, I was raised Catholic. I have nostalgic nostalgia for, um, you know, like we always used to go to midnight mass and like, that reminds me of like in the same way that you might feel nostalgic for like a like a holiday movie right like it's um and my grandma was really Catholic and she was great and and she's passed away and so I think of like when I smell like that incense of Mm -hmm. like church I think of her and I went you know like most of my like, well, not most, but a large number of my childhood memories are, like, my my school was right next to the Catholic Church, and we went there all the time. So, like, I think of myself, like, playing with my friends. Like, I met my two best friends in Catholic choir. And, yeah, so I have, like, positive – I do have a lot of positive associations with it, and but I don't go to – like, no, I wouldn't consider myself Catholic now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go for, like, a wedding or a funeral. I, I don't um, – I'm the same as you, though, where I'm, like – And I think I intellectualize it a little too much because sometimes I think, okay, I don't believe anything happens when you die. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I think, well, maybe I should believe it because then if like, if someone dies, like I think like if like a friend, if a friend's parent dies and they know I don't believe in God or I don't believe anything happens, how am I going to comfort them? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it would be better functionally for me to just keep up the facade. Mm. But I don't, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm agnostic. I I swing back and back and forth. I do sometimes like, I don't know if this is like, sometimes I pray, but I don't know if I'm really praying or if mm. I'm just sort of like, you know, like I will think like, you know, I hope, you know, like I want to put the energy out in the world that I mm-hmm hope something good happens to someone or that someone who's sick feels better or that when I know someone's dying, it's not terrible. Like, but I don't know if that's actually me trying to actually pray or if I'm just like thinking.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I, I waffle back and forth between like being terrified of just one day, like not waking up. And also um, there's this author, Drew McGarry, who writes for this website Defector. And um, he's written a number of, number of novels, but he also wrote a, a memoir called The Night the Lights Went Out. And it's he had like a brain hemorrhage um, at a bar with his friends after like a work event and he wasn't drink, he wasn't drunk or anything. He just like, they to this day don't know what happened. And um, he basically should have died and he didn't. And he woke up like three weeks later in the hospital. And then it's like, the book is about like how he slowly recovered, but he like, I interviewed him for it. And he basically said, I was like, well, how like terrifying is that thought of just not waking up? And he's like, well, for those three weeks, I just didn't experience anything. He's like, there's nothing to be scared about because I, it it was just nothing. And so, like, I waffle back and forth between, like, that sounds peaceful. And also being like, but no, then I just won't be here. What, like,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's scary to think. I do think that, though, like, that is something I think, like, it's like everything does end. Like, a book, for example, if you think of life as a book, mm-hmm. I don't want a book to go on forever and ever. I want it to be, like, I would prefer to have a nice life with a nice ending. Mm hmm than something that goes on forever and doesn't you know yeah. so but it is kind of scary to imagine
0: that yeah i mean it's clearly something you've thought about since your first book is literally titled everyone in this room will someday be dead <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what made you want because it will get and we'll get to your upcoming book in a little bit because i i know that there is a publisher's marketplace announcement about that recently but you know what made you decide to write about these different things for your first novel like when did you say like okay I want to spend a lot of time really diving into this from a a fictional standpoint
1: yeah I think I started writing that book after like right after um my grandma died and my grandma was this very catholic person and she was also like um like very kind of like wise about death and like her death was like it was really devastating for her to die because she was such a you know like she was a presence um but it was also like she died nicely like it was like she had leukemia which is like i don't know if this is always the case but she was like an old lady and Mm -hmm. she called it old lady cancer and we knew she was like she had it for a long time it's the kind of thing that lasts for a long time and it wasn't like she was sick for a long time it was just like oh i i sort of know that I'm not going to live forever because I have leukemia. And she never got uncomfortable. And when she was in the hospital, she was like, she ate like an entire tray of apple crisp the day before she died. Um, And it was like, it it wasn't like, but it was still like obviously devastating for her. She was like, like if I went into my house, she, it was more, it was just as likely for her to have been there as my parents. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, I would go to their house and just open the door and they didn't live that far away. And so it was like, like close family sort of relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But when she died, I, I, I was at the funeral and we were in the Catholic church and the Catholic church is the one I grew up in my whole life. And so I was sort of standing there like, okay, like my, my very Catholic grandma is, is, passed away and here I am in a Catholic church and um I was you know sort of in a depressive uh state uh like even regardless of that because it was sort of that awkward you know mid-20s-ish I guess age where you start to be like well wait a minute you know um so that's when I started writing and I was sort of thinking um you know, I wrote before, but I never really was able to write, with some exceptions, like a full story. Like it was always like um, just sort of acting on the compulsion to write. Yeah. And with with this one, I was like, okay, I should probably at least a little bit think of how this could actually be a book. And so, and I thought, what would be the easiest way for me to do that? And then I thought, oh, I should pick from my from things that aren't difficult for me to to write mm-hmm. about. I have a day job and other things going on, so I was like, okay, I can write about Catholicism. Easy. A lesbian in a Catholic church, no problem. <laughs> Someone who has extreme anxiety, you know, I'll just pick some of these bits out of my diary and we'll <laughs> be all done. Mm-hmm. Not really, though, because a lot of people will, like, talk to you and you I don't know if you've, like, sometimes people will be, like, will talk to me as if I'm Gilda. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... No, I'm not like you know it's like and obviously there are bits but like for example I've had people message me on Instagram like Gilda's Instagram she says something in the book that's like oh I just have one picture on Instagram and it's like of a cat I saw once <laughs> I've gotten more than one message that are like I thought your Instagram was just a cat like one picture of a cat and I'm like you didn't read a memoir <laughs> like, yeah it's not that's not yeah
0: yeah I so only a few people know about my book so far but. My main character is like an old tailor in his 80s. So I haven't, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to have to well you,
1: Yeah, I guess I went a little too close to.
0: <laughs> well, I, I actually, so I abandoned a manuscript after like 70,000 words. And it was, it was basically like a retell. It might as well have been a memoir about my high school, which closed after my senior year. And like mm-hmm. reading through it, it's so obvious. Like, no, this is just a heightened version of me and a heightened version of all these people. And I was like, I don't want to. You know, c- cross my fingers, get that published one day, and then have all my like classmates. That <laughs> <I'm>, like, <laughs> like,
1: oh man. <laughs> like, you know what though? Like, I used to be more worried about, like, oh, like, I don't want to, like, I'd overthink certain things I wrote to be like that one line, that one guy I knew five years ago people don't read your book. <laughs> They're not going to read your book. Like it's going to be like, it's going to be like a small handful of people. Mm-hmm. Most of them aren't. So I like my philosophy is I don't, like if there's something you can read between the lines, the odds of you getting there are pretty slim. So yeah. don't worry about it.
0: So so talk to me about your new book, Interesting Facts About Space. I'm, I'm curious if there's any kind of through line or if you were just like, okay, I have written about emotional and religious and spiritual trauma and my like mental health aspects, I'm going to step way off into the field. Like, you know, what, yeah. how does it, it look?
1: This one is still, so this one, it does move away from religious trauma. There isn't, there isn't, uh, I don't think there's very much religious trauma addressed in that book, but it is still about um, mental health. So the main character mm-hmm. in that story has um, like an irrational fear of bald men. And it's and you know like a phobia is like it's just anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. So she's she's also um, similarly to Gilda, she's very anxious. But um, yeah, and the story's about her um, feeling like someone's following her. Um, so I'm we're still we haven't even started editing it yet, so I don't have a very yeah. good uh, yeah <laughs> great, uh, you know summary of what the story is, but that's mm-hmm. that's in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I I totally, I, the only reason I asked you about it is because I know that there was the publisher's marketplace announcement. so I knew it was like out in the world. But yeah. I will say, and I think I might have told you this when we were talking about your first book, like, one of the things that I felt like I related so much to it was because of the way that you wrote it. And it, it's written like a person who has anxiety and it's... <laughs> Like, is written, like, and I know I'm not unique in this, obviously, because you wrote the book, but, like, it's written, like, the way my brain works, where it'll be, like, a sentence here and then a sentence there, and then I'll be like, shit, I need to go back to that first thing I was thinking of. <laughs> and even though I, I had somebody else who doesn't suffer from anxiety, like, I do tell me, like, wow, reading this made me anxious. But as an anxious person, reading it brought me peace. <laughs>
1: so,
0: um, so is that are you thinking about crafting the second book kind of like a similar vein? I've just never, this is just like a roundabout way to compliment you. Like I've never read anything that so accurately depicted how my brain works.
1: That means a lot. To me. yeah. You. yeah. I know sometimes people like, uh, sometimes I'll see a review that's like, Oh, this, this book like made, like made me miserable. Like I hate it. And then other people will be like, Oh, this book was fun. Like some people will be like, why do people say this is, this is like, this is funny. This isn't funny. This is so sad. And I'm like, I can tell who has mental illness when I, (laughs) I Um, but yeah, I do think like, so I did lean into that and everyone in this room will someday be dead because Mm -hmm. I was trying to like create the idea that she's having a panic attack or like her thoughts are racing, but You know, I, I also have anxiety and it's, and that's how I would write. Like that is sort of my writing style. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little less in this one because she's anxious in a different way than, than Gilda is like, um, she, she has a phobia and she has like a fear. And so that's more of the, so, Mm -hmm. but it, it does, it is still sort of jumpy because she is, um, anxious too. And because I'm anxious and that's how,
0: that's how I think so. Yeah is there so i'm i'm asking a lot of people who i'm talking to like what their why is for writing this book like i think for the first one it's kind of obvious after you know the last 30 minutes of us talking and having spoken before but like what's what was sort of your why for the second book like what made you want to say like okay i'm going to spend whether it's four months or six months or however long it takes you to draft that, like, what was the reason that you're like, ah, this is the topic I want to write about?
1: This the to- yeah. Um, I guess, you know, when I first started thinking of it, I was like, okay, I still feel like I have m- more to write about in terms of anxiety.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, but I didn't want, I wanted to, you know, write a new story obviously. And so I was thinking, okay, what are other, <laughs> like, what are other, sort of experiences I've had in terms of anxiety outside of like existential dread type of anxiety, which Gilda has. And I was thinking like, okay, like fear, um, like phobia. So I was trying to write about what it's like to be someone who's deeply fearful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the main character in that book is like, um again, I'm not gonna be able to speak to this very well, but she's she's fearful like it's she has a phobia of Baldman. Mm-hmm. But she also has like a phobia of intimacy and she has like um it like parallels like her own sort of like other fears that are less plainly written on the page. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to write about um feeling like um like her main thing is that she's worried she's a bad person and mm-hmm. she has a fear of intimacy partly because she thinks she's a bad person. Um and then that's sort of like <clears throat> An attempt at sort of comically paralleled than being that in that she's afraid of all Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the. I love it.
0: <laughs> uh, this is a audio medium, so people won't see me of like having been like nodding my head yes, yes. I just, like I said, I just think the way that you write so like it's exactly how my brain works. So like as you're uh-huh. describing it, I'm like, yeah, uh huh. I want to. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I have those feelings where like once a day at minimum I'm like wow I'm an awful person it'll be for like the most <laughs> irrational reason like my dog will be itchy and I'll be like wow I haven't even like thought about getting the medicine it's like what are you talking about yeah so that's those are yeah. things yeah,
1: yeah. um I mean, that's sort of an extension of part of what we were talking about like that idea that you're raised to feel like something's wrong with you there's something you need to fix you're fundamentally at your core mm-hmm. that is sort of that is sort of reflected in that book even though it's not directly tied to
0: Catholicism yeah I I but and I think I I do think the like the reason we all start questioning those things when we get to be like either teenagers or in our 20s is like I feel like it takes at least it took me that long to kind of understand like my parents don't know literally everything like they're also just trying to figure life out and um you know they're not they're not omniscient like they they don't have all the answers. They were just trying to figure this out too. And they thought this was maybe the best thing for us. And
1: Absolutely. yeah, I think like, I sort of have a theory that that's like, optimistically that's why a lot of religions come to exist it's for like someone you know way back when thought if we give people like more black and white rules about behavior then they'll have this handbook to be good but then what happens is it falls into the hands of people who want to use it for other reasons and then it ultimately does the opposite but yeah.
0: yeah And then you're left with exactly what's going on in the United States currently. Uh, but that's a whole nother podcast. Um, I am leaving every conversation with authors by asking for a recommendation. It can be a book. And in fact, most people have done books, but it could be a TV show you're enjoying or a new album that you're really liking, whatever a thing is that you're just enjoying lately. Like what's something Emily Austin would recommend?
1: Uh, I just read a book called Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead. Uh Um, It's a book about, um, about a two spirited indigenous person in Canada. And it's about like sex work and trauma. Mm -hmm. And it was really like, um, like it's sort of more of a, like here's a look at a person type of story than it is like, this is, you know, this is a story about someone on a quest, (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) but I really loved it. It had like, um, like, a really like sharp voice gives a really uh, interesting insight to like that particular type of identity being too mm-hmm. spirited and, and, you know, um, like living on the res and, and um, yeah. So it's a uh, Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead. Really good. I will add,
0: have you read all my puny sorrows by Miriam? Oh,
1: I love that book. That's yeah. one of my favorite books. That was my favorite book when I was a teenager. That was the, the first book that I read that wasn't like uh you know, like what's assigned to you in school that I was like, Oh my God, books can be so good. Yeah.
0: I will just, is it Miriam? Is it toes? I don't know how to pronounce your last name.
1: Yeah. Good question. I don't think I've ever had to say it
0: out loud. EWS and like everything else for everybody. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes, but I will say like, if you like Emily's first book, I feel like all my puny sorrows.
1: Oh, that's such a nice compliment. It would Thank be you, like
0: though. a connection. Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, that's that's one that kind of stuck with me when it comes to like religion and conservative families and uh, things
1: like yeah. that. And um, actually, another um, Casey Plett is a Canadian writer, and she was also in like similarly, like in a Mennonite family. Mm-hmm. She's a trans woman, though, and she writes stories about like, um, she wrote um, Little Fish is mm-hmm. one, and she wrote a short story collection recently, A Dream of a Woman. And anyway, it's, it, I think, if you like, um, Miriam,
0: however you said her last name, you like anyone. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Uh, well, Emily, I like much like all of the first like eight people I've talked to. I literally just sent you a DM on Twitter and was like, "Hey, I really loved talking with you. The times we've gotten to, would you mind doing this?" And you were so gracious to say yes. So that's I nice. really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's always it's always nice chatting with you anytime you yeah. if you ever have a blank spot and you need someone to fill it. Let me know.
0: (laughs) Passions and Prologues is proud to be an Evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell.